Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim will be back next week for our very special Thanksgiving episode, and we hope you'll send us your questions because we'll be answering them all episode long. You can either send them to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them to us or send them to us on threads. But first, this week, we'll be discussing new developments in the New York Attorney General's fraud case, including the gag order being put on hold for now by a New York appellate judge and Trump's motion to dismiss the case. We'll also be discussing developments in the Fulton County case, including the impact of evidence leaks, and the Supreme Court has adopted an ethics code. We'll give you our assessment of whether it's meaningful, though. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show today and all episode next week. So before we get to the show, y'all, I mean, it's the season. And my question for you this week is, what are your best tips for traveling and for being a good guest at Thanksgiving dinner? I don't have travel coming up, but I'm going to be the guest at a large Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm trying to figure out what I should do to be helpful. So I'm not traveling. And I think my best advice about traveling is don't do it. (laughs) Thanksgiving is horrible time to travel. The airports are a mess. All transportation is. So just don't do it. Um, And I'm delighted that I'm going to a dear friend's house. And to be a good guest, of course, I will help her with setting up and cleaning up. Although I know she'll say you don't have to, but I will. And I am bringing my favorite... um, key lime tart, Mm. and my family favorite, jello mold. Um, She only asked for one, but I might bring two. I'm bringing a um, lime jello with pears and cream cheese, and it's delicious. It's really good. good. But I also do a cranberry mold, which is a great, great reminder of the holiday. You know, I make fresh cranberry sauce every year. It's really easy. It takes about 10 minutes. My husband, though, he likes the log, you know, that cranberry jelly that comes out of the can. And it's the fight in our house. He literally buys a can and slops it on a plate, um, which is a source of embarrassment. Oh, God. Luckily, my husband loves my cranberry sauce, so he's okay with that. And I also make cranberry chutney, which is really good. Oh, that sounds good. Ooh, Jill. Okay, Barb, what, what are your tips? Well, I'm just, I don't know if I, I know how to be a good guest, but I'm trying to avoid being a bad guest. Uh, so the, the big point of contention for me on Thanksgiving is we celebrate Thanksgiving um, out of state with the in-laws, and mm-hmm. it is their family tradition to have Thanksgiving dinner at the noon hour, which was not my family's tradition. We went yeah. more of at the dinner hour. And the problem with the noon hour for a Detroiter is that's when the Lions play. 
And so I got to figure out how to, you know, eat and make conversation while also watching the Lions game. So this year, you know, I got some of those Powerbeat Pros, the little black headphones that are wireless. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I might be able to hide them in my hair and have the audio of the game going on my phone in my pocket. And I can just sort of nod along when people are talking at dinner but also listen to the Lions game as it's being played. Of course, the, the, the challenge is not to shout out when they score a touchdown or to you know, let out some profanity when there's a, a bad development in the game. Well, you're totally burned now, though, because, I mean, you know, people are going to be giving you up to your mother-in-law after we've had this discussion. But I totally feel your pain. We go to my best friend from law school's house for Thanksgiving, and she's amazing. It's a wonderful Thanksgiving. But she does a lunch hour one, too. She's from um, Southside, Virginia, you know, and they eat like a lunch thing. At home, we had a formal dinner. And it's not a football thing for me. It just feels too early in the day to eat. And then I have to feed my kids again at night. <clears throat> my tradition was always sort of late afternoon. So it was earlier than dinner, but late enough, Barb, that you could have watched the game. I think <laughs> it would have been your the house. perfect solution. Yeah. Come to your house next year. Well, go Lions. I'll spot you the Lions, Thank Barb. You. But man, right. if Michigan and, and Bama get into it, baby, you know it's roll tide all the way. <laughs> all right, go blue. <laughs> Back that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This week, the defense began presenting its case in the New York fraud case. They started with Don Jr. as their first witness, followed up by a tax lawyer, Sherry Dillon, and then a friend of Trump Sr., Stephen Whitkoff, who's a real estate developer who donated $2 million to Trump's PAC. And then they had some accounting experts and two other expert witnesses. And Barb, I want to start with you. Were the defense witnesses so far helpful to the defense? You know, I, you never know exactly what is um, in the mind of the fact finder because he heard everybody testify and saw them on the stand. But based on the reporting that I saw about this, you know, the answer is no. This case is really all about these valuations they that they put in one document that were, you know, grotesquely overstated from where they show up in other documents. And so it's pretty difficult to refute those numbers. But, you know, Don Jr. just got on the stand and kind of walked through building porn. You know, you put buildings up. Uh, oh, look at this Mar-a-Lago lobby. You couldn't make that today. The marble, the golden appointments. Uh. And it really didn't, you know, refute any of this. Um, they put on some experts. Uh, the experts, um, e even the real estate expert got just totally destroyed, I thought, on cross-examination. He said, Oh, well, you know, we were talking about the investment value of these things, not the fair market value of these things. And so that's where the discrepancy comes in. 
And on cross-examination, one of the uh, lawyers for the attorney general's office said, can you please read what's on page one of your document? And it says, these represent the fair market value of these. Doc-. You're like, oh, um, yeah, no, no, nothing further, no further questions. So I didn't think there was anything particularly helpful in the defense. So, so Joyce, what is the defense? Is there really any defense to the documents that prove that have already been found to be fraud? Yeah, I mean, it felt a lot like um, we're the Trumps, so we're above the law. But, you know, the judge has already decided liability. We know that. There was summary judgment before the trial. He's, in for the most part, determining damages. There are still some charges that Tish James brought to be decided. But this is about how much money the Trumps have to play, have to pay at the end of the day. And, and so I think um, what Barb has so appropriately tagged building porn, you know, this just very glossy PowerPoint that the Trumps put up called the Trump story, um, sort of putting all of Donald Trump's many successes on display through the eyes of his namesake. This Can I just interrupt here? And I'm sorry, Joyce. You know what it reminds me of? Have you what? ever seen those spoofs in The Simpsons where they talk about, you know, um, yes. like a, a fake documentary? Yes. Uh, where they tell the story of like the nuclear plant. It all began with a dream. Uh, it reminded me of that. Like, oh my gosh, is this a spoof? It really does. And, you know, The Simpsons has been so prophetic with Trump. Maybe we'll get another episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I mean, I think that that's fair, right? This felt very fantastical. Uh, on the other hand, I think it really is the only defense strategy that they could have used here. In essence, they're saying there's more than one way to value these properties. And this is how we valued them in an effort to say we weren't making it up. We weren't outright fraudsters. You may not like what we did. You may think it was wrong, but you shouldn't slam us with damages. So, you know, just because many of us don't like Trump and don't like the way he operates doesn't mean um, that there can't be legitimate legal strategies that he pursues on occasion. I think given the bad hand that they're holding here and the fact that the judge has already found against them, this is about the best that they could do. Trying to trying to say what we did is not something that you should whack us big time for. And, and I think we should remind our listeners that this is a trial by a judge. There is no jury. So even if this glossy presentation might have worked in front of a jury, it's not going to sway a judge who's looking at facts and at documents. But in addition to all this, Attorney General James moved to exclude certain experts that he wanted to call, the defense wanted to call, because they were irrelevant because the fraud was already decided. But Judge Engeron denied that, you know, that motion and let them testify. And so, Barb, talk about whether Judge Engeron was correct in allowing them to testify. And also, I've been wondering whether the reason he did that was to avoid any possible reversible error by limiting the defense case. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a plausible theory. You know, sometimes you see that where I've had judges even say to me as the prosecutor, you know, when you they rule against you on some objection, you know, objection, Your Honor, that evidence is inadmissible. And then they pull you over a sidebar, even with, you know, the defense lawyer present, like, believe me, you'll thank me later on appeal that this came in. Like, hey, don't don't make my life too easy, judge, you know, like, uh, don't do me too many favors. But um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that is one theory for sure. But I think that there's still some um, issues that are on the table. The summary judgment motion that was granted only went to one claim. That was this um, uh, 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 claim of of fraud. 
Um, but there are several other claims that are left undecided about fraudulent submissions. And then there's still the question as to the amount uh, of the damages, the engorgement or, or the disgorgement that should uh, take place. So I think there's value in having these um, uh, witnesses testify, especially the experts. Even the judge said, he, he, it kind of suggested to me that like he was sort of curious what they would even put up. Like, well, let's see what they have to say. I'm kind of curious about it. Um, so I think it was the safer course. And other than the time that was spent listening to it, there's really no harm in hearing it. Exactly. And after the testimony, Attorney General James criticized the witnesses. What were her complaints and were her criticisms of those witnesses appropriate? Yeah. So, you know, her criticism of, of Don Trump Jr., I think, was the most biting criticism. I wrote down her quote. This is what she said. After spending a full day walking through a marketing presentation to sell us all on the greatness of the Trump organization, the defendants still did not make a single point to refute the case we brought against them. And she said that in a video that she posted on her ex account um, following Don Jr.'s testimony. A and so I I'm just going to say, you know, I, I, my background is as a federal prosecutor. I appreciate that it's very different being a state prosecutor. For one thing, um, state's attorney generals are elected officials. They have an obligation in that sense to be responsive to the public in the ways that are a little bit different for a federal prosecutor. But it makes me very uncomfortable to see a prosecutor out in public talking about their case while it's ongoing. And I, I think I would have been happier had she not done that. Boy, I agree with you, Joyce. I feel like she and Fannie Willis are just talking too much in the press. And I agree, but all three of us are federal prosecutors. Yeah. And so I'm glad you pointed that out, Joyce, because it does make a difference. I, I was deputy attorney general, and it is different when you're elected. So that does make a difference. But I my comfort level still goes to the federal uh, side. But let's turn to the gag order, because it's been a big deal in the New York case. It was narrowly drafted to prevent Trump Sr. and his attorneys, eventually, they, it was applied to the attorneys, talking about the judge's law clerk, Allison Greenfield, after they falsely accused her of being Senator Schumer's girlfriend and complained about her sitting next to and advising Judge Engeron during the trial. On Thursday, a New York appellate judge put it on hold as violating Trump's First Amendment rights and being unusual in a civil case without a jury that could be influenced by these out-of-court statements. So, Barb, first let me ask you something, because you clerked for a federal judge. Um, and so based on your experience, and of course, Joyce, weigh in, because we have all watched lots of trials, participated in many trials. Is it uncommon for a clerk to sit next to the judge in the courtroom, whispering and passing notes during a trial? Yeah, you know, in the court where I worked, um, the clerk sat in front of the judge, but we were up on the bench. Uh, but we were at a level below the judge, but at a desk kind of right in front. I think different courts have different arrangements. Um, sitting next to the judge, I don't know, I've, se I've seen uh, clerks at maybe a, a, a different sort of little station, but right up on the same level as the judge. And you want to be in arm's length proximity to the judge because that that's your job. You know, the judge is supposed to be singly focused on the case before them. They are listening to witnesses. They're listening to lawyers. They may be reading briefs. There's a lot going on. And so in the meantime, 
the clerk is looking up things for the judge. You know, maybe they're on a computer and pulling something to give to the judge. Maybe they are finding a case citation. Maybe they're finding uh, the right brief for the judge to uh, look at as the arguments are being made. Sometimes it's something as simple as handing a note to say, um, the parties for your two o'clock settlement conference are here. Would you like to take your afternoon break now and go meet with them? You know, so it's all kinds of things. So I don't think there's anything improper about what the clerk is doing here. And I think the Trump team's efforts to portray it as such is an effort to uh, kind of um, convince the public that there's something unfair going on here. And, and Joyce, there's another allegation against the clerk, which is that she violated donation limits uh, in contributing to political candidates. Um, and is there any evidence about that allegation that could indicate some unfairness in the trial for her if she did make donations uh, and if they exceeded the legal limits? Yeah, well, first let me say that it's incredibly rich for the man who is um, egging Judge Eileen Cannon on in Florida uh, to complain about a judge's law clerk as a source of bias. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, and some smart litigant might be tempted to say that they would agree to have Judge Ngoran stand down as long as Judge Cannon did too. But look, the reality here is New York has very restrictive laws about donations, even by judges' law clerks. It's, it's a gray area. She was running for office in 2022 when she made most of these donations. I think some sort of administrative body will have to determine whether or not she engaged in violations. But that's something that should be determined by a New York administrative body. She is not deciding this case. The judge is deciding the case. But apparently Trump's lawyer, somebody had gone down and tracked down her donations. And this, I think, is why we saw that social media post sort of suggesting wrongfully that she was romantically involved with Chuck Schumer. This has been just a smear job from the get-go. It's unseemly. The lawyers, I think, are, are very close to violating ethical rules by engaging in this. You know, you are supposed to litigate vigorously on behalf of your client, but slandering or libeling someone um, is, is really out of bounds. And that's essentially what they've tried to do. So if they want to go after the law clerk, by all means, file some sort of administrative complaint or, or ethics complaint and let that be decided. Even if she had violated those rules, that just does not impact the outcome of this case in anybody's mind except for Donald Trump's. And, and so both of you, what do you think is going to happen ultimately? It has been stayed. And of course, Immediately upon its stay, there were new attacks published through the uh, Truth Social uh, website. And I, I just wonder what's going to happen. Is it going to get worse? Will it uh, ultimately be put back in place because of the damage it's, the comments do? I think it's a really tough call. You know, this Donald Trump has filed this separate lawsuit against Judge Ingeron to uh, preclude him from gagging Trump. And so it's a, it's a really interesting and different tactic. And the judge so far who looked at it preliminarily uh, said that uh, the gag order should be suspended. It's a tricky needle to thread when 
on the one hand, you've got somebody making these outrageous statements that are targeting individuals by name. And on the other hand, you have someone who's running for president because the people deserve to hear from this person. But I think that it's a little bit naive to think that um, someone, just because they're running for president, should have unfettered ability to say whatever they want. We live in an incredibly dangerous threat climate. And as a result of that, I think judges need to be realistic and accept that there are some limits on speech. And ordinarily, I know sometimes people think we have an absolute right to First Amendment speech, but of course, uh, they can be um, limited to reasonable time, place, and manner. And as long as there is a compelling governmental interest that is in a restriction that's narrowly tailored to achieve that interest, then a limit is appropriate. But figuring out exactly where those boundaries are might be a little bit of a challenge. And I think that's what the courts are working through right now. You know, I think Barb is dead on the money on the difficulties there. And this strategy of filing a separate lawsuit reminds me so much of what Trump did after the search at Mar-a-Lago, mm. where instead of dealing with the search warrant in the appropriate form, and he files that separate lawsuit that ends up in front of Judge Cannon. You know, he doesn't like the judge here. He wanted to get these issues in front of a different judge. I tend to think that this um, suspension of the gag order is, is administrative. We've seen this happen before. Judges do this to give themselves a few days to decide an issue. Um, but Trump is in, in a tough space here because if he violates the gag order while it's suspended, it only makes the case for reimposing it stronger. And this is just someone who has the self-control of a toddler. I think with it suspended, he'll, mm -hmm. he'll be unable to avoid temptation. For sure. And I have to say, Barb, you gave a perfect opening for me to plug your book because oh. you talked about the dangerous environment and your book is soon to come out about the danger from within. Yeah. So everyone, pre-order it. Thanks but very let much. Me get to, let me get to the last question that I want to ask you both to weigh in on. And that is the fact that Trump this week filed a motion to dismiss the entire fraud case. And uh, while we were recording, Judge Engeron ruled against Donald Trump's latest motion, a motion to dismiss the entire case. He said it was nonsensical and that the complaints about his uh, clerk were exactly what we just said. She doesn't make the rulings, so even so, it will have no consequence. So it has been denied. Good outcome. Well, Fulton County, Georgia, there has been a lot going on in the last week. I don't think it lets up anytime soon. But the big sort of marquee item this week was the leak of videotapes or portions of videotapes of defendants who had pled guilty of their proffer statements. Um, how does this happen, Barb? And do you think that there are going to be consequences? Yeah, you know, I I, I hate to be uh, dismissive of state court practitioners uh, and be a federal court snob, but my gosh, <laughs> how do you not go through a high-profile case like this insisting on a protective order? They kind of let this languish a little bit. You know, the parties have been working toward a protective order for many, many months, but they haven't been able to reach an agreement. 
And so it's just been hanging out there, but I kind of put it on the prosecution and on the judge for letting this uh, languish like that. And so as a result, there's no protective order. So the prosecution is turning over all this material and discovery. And, you know, the purpose of it is to allow the defense to prepare for trial. But without an order from the court saying you may not disclose this to anybody else, um, you know, they some defense attorney admitted that he turned it over to a press outlet who ran it in the news, uh, you know, and shared it and broadcast it. So it's, um, I, I think, poor lawyering, poor judging to allow this to happen. Um, but uh, now that the horse is out of the barn, I think a protective order is important to prevent further incidents like this from happening. Did you notice how the judge was really careful to distance himself from the <laughs> failure to impose the protective order? It's like the first paragraph of his order. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, the the DA asked for this and I was advised that there were negotiations and nobody ever got back to me. I mean, I, I really yeah. saw him as wanting to distance himself from the uh, mistake there. What did you think, Jill? Well, I agree with what you have both said, that it should have been in place and would have been if they had done the federal practice. Um, But there can't be consequences because they didn't violate any orders by doing it. The only thing that I would think is a consequence is, what were they thinking? I don't see how it helps his client Um, or anybody else in the case. It seems sort of silly to me. In fact, it kind of makes the case stronger because you have participants, co-defendants, who are saying, yeah, we did all these bad things and we're pleading guilty because we did these bad things. So I think that it won't impact Fannie Willis's real overall case um, because it will be uh, eventually let into evidence. Although here's the, the rub is that's why it shouldn't have been leaked is because we don't try cases in the court of public opinion, number one. But number two is it might not be admissible for some reason. It might not be offered in evidence for some reason. And in that case, the jury might have heard it as part of the publicity and could be tainted by having heard it before going into the jury room. So I think it was a really bad idea overall and shouldn't have happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that admissibility issue is a serious one. The DA may never try to offer these into evidence. The judge might, you know, say this evidence can't come in. It's hearsay or whatever reason there might be. And then you've got this whole jury pool that's been tainted because this stuff has been spread all over the place. And, you know, the person that benefits from that is any convicted defendant on appeal can then challenge their conviction on that basis. So the defendants have no real incentive to prevent this from happening, I guess, except for the lawyer's reputations. It's really funny, Mm -hmm. Willis, that the burden falls on here to, to prevent this. I mean, do you think the leaks impact her case, Barb? I don't know. I guess it'll depend on how this comes out. You know, she's not the one who leaked it. It's uh, this de- defense lawyer, Jonathan uh, Miller, who represents one of the defendants, uh, Misty Hampton. And so, um, but in the end, if the consequence is to reverse a conviction, you know, then she's going to be the one who loses in the end and all of us will be. But I don't know. I think we have to wait and see. I, I still think that despite um, having the stuff out there, it might make jury selection a little more challenging. I think they're going to have to ask mm, yeah. people, mm-hmm. did you hear this? Did you make form an opinion based on what you heard or did you see it or did you read about it? So I think they have um, they can probably address this in jury selection. 
But, uh, you know, it's going to make it that much harder to find an impartial jury. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about the impact on jury selection, but you're absolutely right about that. I, I mean, I thought the judge who has been really good throughout this whole this whole pretrial sort of proceeding, I was impressed by his demeanor. I imagine a lot of judges would have, um, we don't swear on this podcast, so I won't <laughs> say what I was thinking. A lot of judges would have really blown their stack. And, and the lawyer, Jonathan Miller, seemed to think he was in a lot of trouble. You know, he was like, well, judge, you know, sort of hemming and hawing. And he said, but I need to tell you this so I can sleep easy tonight. And I thought, wow, this is a lawyer who knows he's transgressed. The judge is remarkably even-tempered and just keeps going and never raises his voice. What have y'all thought about his demeanor? Oh, I think he's been fantastic. I think Judge McAfee has really controlled the courtroom and done a really good job. So, you know, I don't blame him for distancing himself, and I do think it really was not his responsibility to put this in place. He responds to motions from the parties, and they let it ride. So there was no particular order saying you can't disclose it. It would have seemed silly to me to disclose it, but there was no no consequence if they did because there was no order in place. And I do think he's been very good. Yeah, agreed. He's um, not terribly experienced, hasn't been on the bench all yeah. that long, but it seems like he's doing a good job to be careful. I think he's also been appointed by the Republican governor of the state of Georgia. Uh, I have not seen any evidence of bias politically uh, in him. I think he's calling it straight down the line. And so, so far, I've been very impressed with his work. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. Federalist Society member clerked on the Georgia Supreme Court for um, a, a Republican Supreme Court justice. They elect their justices in Georgia, who is Barb, a former colleague of ours, Dave Namias from the, um, mm -hmm. the Georgia office, Northern District of Georgia, who was a great guy. And I think it underscores the point that most judges just set aside their politics when they go on, on the bench. We've seen a, a sort of a bad apple with Eileen Cannon. I think she's the exception, not the rule. And it's important for people to understand that. It gives me a little bit more confidence in our system to think about that. Um, so switching gears just a little bit in Georgia, Fonnie Willis has now moved to revoke re um, the bond for Harrison Floyd. He's one of the defendants who was involved in the harassment of Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. He helped to identify them. Um, and he's now accused of trying to intimidate witnesses with his social media posts. So, Jill, it's a little bit dicey. You know, Ford is one of just a couple of black defendants in the case. He says it's racial animus on the DA's part. Do you agree that she's going after him because he's the lone or one of the two black defendants or are there substantive reasons for her motion? Man, all you have to read is her reasons in the motion to revoke his bond. And he has consistently posted things that are definitely intended as violations of the order of his bond, which says he cannot communicate with any of the co-defendants or witnesses, that he can't intimidate any of the witnesses or co-defendants. And she has half a dozen or more examples of posts that he has put out there that are aimed at, well, the same people he already intimidated as part of his indictment, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, but also at other witnesses, Brad Raffsenberger, for example. And so I think the the evidence against him on this is pretty substantial. And, you know, is there a way to 
uh, control him beyond what was already put in his bond? I don't know. I mean, there has to be some consequence for violating the terms of his bond. Um, Well, I mean, Barb, that raises the gorilla in the room, right? Trump has also attacked witnesses. Do you think that there's a difference in this case between what he's done and what Floyd has done? And, And does the motion against Floyd suggest one is coming for Trump? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because, no, it's really very similar. He's going after um, the governor and the secretary of state of Georgia, who are witnesses in this case. And, you know, he says something like um, they're about to go through some things. I mean, it's it's threatening. It's intimidating. And these are clearly witnesses in the case. It's very similar to the stuff that Donald Trump is going through. And so in many ways, it seems like like cases should be treated alike. However, you know, I go back to the language in um, the judge's um, order in New York who suspended that gag order against Donald Trump. And he talked about how, you know, core political speech relates to a candidate for president. So it, we talked about threading the needle and making sure that um, that limits on speech are narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Is that interest different when you have a presidential candidate versus an ordinary citizen. I don't think that should be the case, right? I mean, everybody should be held to the same standard. But if the judges have been talking about this idea of the right of the public to hear from the candidate, not the right of the candidate to say these things, then maybe we do get a different outcome here. I don't know, but I think it'd be really interesting to watch and see how these different defendants are treated in a very similar context. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tough question. You're right. Because if, if, you know, let's say the worst thing happens and someone is motivated to engage in violence against a witness, well, it's not going to really matter to the person who's attacked whether it comes from someone who's a presidential candidate or not, right? The threat to them, the the violence that's inflicted upon them is the same regardless of which defendant does it. But as you say, it, you know, what ultimately motivates prosecutors and judges alike is avoiding getting a conviction reversed on appeal. Um And here, there are political consequences to consider, perhaps, but the real consequence in my mind is, do you do something now that infringes on the possibility of conviction down the road? What do you think, Jill? You've seen it from both sides. I I have to say it is a very tricky question, and it is a very narrow path to get the right answer. But I have to come out on every criminal defendant is entitled to the same exact treatment. And yes, one of those criminal defendants happens to be a candidate for president and the other is not, but they are both criminal defendants and they cannot be allowed to influence the outcome of a trial because it's not just the defendant who's entitled to a free and fair trial. It is the people. And I think in this case, you have to treat potential threats to witnesses, potential threats to Uh, the jury pool, or tainting the jury pool the same way. And so whatever happens for one has to hold true for the other. Yeah. I mean, it's tough balancing the equities there, I think. So y'all, I was going to ask you as a last question, um, when you thought we would see this case go to trial. Fonnie Willis, of course, has said in public um, in the last week that she believes that the case will still be in trial in early 2025. But here we are, we're taping Friday afternoon at at three in the afternoon, and we've just learned that the Fulton County DA's office has filed a motion asking for an August 2024 trial date for the remaining defendants, 
including Donald Trump, you know, that doesn't, at least as far as memory serves, conflict with any of the other scheduled trial dates. Do you guys think it'll really go out in August or will the judge push back? What do you think, Barb? I think that's a very reasonable request, right? It's quite a ways out. It's, um, what is it, nine months from now. So it is, it is quite a ways out. And it allows adequate time for the other trials that are currently on the books. So I think it's a reasonable request. Although, as you all know, that oftentimes trial dates don't stick because motions get filed, things happen, especially in a case like this with so many defendants, things can happen even with health issues or the health of a lawyer or something like that. But I think it's a great place to start. And it's it's good to have a date um, on the books so that you're not just sort of floating out there forever. It also would be great, I think, to get this case resolved before the November 2024 election so that voters have access to that information and casting an informed vote. I would say ditto to everything Barb just said. And I am so grateful that Fannie Willis has made this request. And it would mean that we could have a decision before the election. I was very disappointed when I heard that she was talking about it finishing in 2025, when it would have way less significant meaning and would have less factual impact on the election. So I'm very grateful that she has made this motion. And I agree with Barbara. It is a perfectly legitimate and reasonable timeline for it. It will not interfere with any of the other trials that are set and makes total sense to me. So I I think it can go. And I don't think there are such complicated legal issues here that there will be a lot of motion practice. I think it's very reasonable and possible. You know, I'm not so sure if she gets her August trial date that it's done by the election. She said that it will take many months to try the case. She still has a lot of defendants on the table. August, September, October, November. I think that we could literally be in the middle of this trial when the election happens, certainly when early voting starts, which would uh, definitely be a first in this country. And, and, you know, the other concern that I have, and I hate to harp on poor Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida, <laughs> but um, that case was indicted early. That case is a simple straight line forward. These much more complicated cases, the D.C. January 6th case and the Atlanta case, seem to be lined up and getting ready to go, and she can't enter a classified information order. I I would think that she would use an August date for this trial as an excuse to back hers up further. And I have always perceived, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I've thought it was the most dangerous case for Trump. It's clear he mishandled very sensitive national secrets. That conviction, you know, there are these polls now that say that there's a 10% swing, that 10% of voters say that they will not vote for Trump if he's convicted, and that that would impact six or seven of the swing states. I think she may single-handedly be trying to undo justice here and and undo the ability of people to understand just how bad Trump's conduct is. So I don't know that I'm a fan of this August trial date. Well, let me say two things. One, even if you're right that it doesn't end before the election, remember, it is a televised trial. And so the information Mm. will be coming out and people will have facts and see for themselves who the witnesses are and how credible they are. So I think that's a good thing to get it at least started. Um, And I think by the time it goes to trial, there's going to be far fewer defendants and that it won't take as long. Um, But you're right, it could take long. And 
of course, uh, Judge Cannon is looking for any excuse to postpone this. But her at least currently set trial date will not interfere with an August trial. So again, I think that it is possible to finish the Florida um, Mar-a-Lago case before the August date. Um, Judge Cannon has done everything she could to make sure that the trial date gets blown. Um, she's not having a, a crucial hearing until March 1st, which could end up pushing the trial date back. So that gets into a, an iffy case. But as you've pointed out, this is a pretty simple case and isn't going to take months to try. Even with the suppression of evidence part of it, which I think is the most interesting part of this, the other part is simple. Did he have the documents? Absolutely. Did he conceal them? Absolutely. Were they illegally in his possession? Absolutely. So, I mean, how many days does it take to prove that? Not that many. Um, and the suppression won't take that long either. So uh, obstruction of justice and uh, misuse of classified documents, easy case. And I think it can be over before an August trial date. Well, this week we saw something I wasn't sure we'd see from the Supreme Court, a new SCOTUS ethics code, or does that make it an ethics CODIS? Um, you know, after all of those reports during the past year about luxury trips and undeclared gifts by some of the Supreme Court justices, they finally issued their own ethics code this week. Um, and I want to talk about it maybe in stages. You know, first, is there anything you like about this? And then are there any loopholes you can see in this? And then finally... Uh, how do you put any teeth in this thing? So let's start generously. Is there anything about this here that you like? There's some good things in here, right? Joyce, what what in this maybe did you find that's favorable? Yeah, no, I, I really didn't find anything to like. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I look, I'm going to be the Debbie Downer in the room on this. This is a lot of pretty words, but the bottom line for me is in the first paragraph where the judges say that they are guided by these principles, not that they're bound by them, but they're guided. And then they say, and these are ethics principles that have been in place for a really long time. A and so I'm immediately thinking, well, if you've been guided by these principles that have been <laughs> around forever, then why are we where we are in, in November of 2023 with the court, you know, at a low watermark um, in public opinion? Um, I heard Sheldon Whitehouse talking about these rules the night they happened. I thought he got it better than, than I could have expressed it. This is what he said. It's like the justices have finally agreed to play baseball according to the rules, but they're not willing to let any umpires in to oversee their play. And to me, that's exactly what's going on here. Well, all right, Jill, you got anything you like about this new well, ethics code? Well, if I really, really push myself, <laughs> and basically I agree completely with Joyce, and I want to say more about that, but it does make clear that Thomas's grandnephew is covered <laughs> because they've defined what a third degree of relationship is yeah, and right? includes someone who's living in your house as if they were a family member. So, okay, that's really, really stretching to find something good to say about it. But I would go along with what Joyce said, but I would point to their first paragraph. All you have to do is read the first paragraph, and you will conclude, as I did, that they said these rules are not new. 
It's the same thing we've always had, which obviously are clearly inadequate because if they weren't, we wouldn't have the low opinion of the court that we currently have. They blame us, the people, for misunderstanding. They don't accept responsibility. And they say that to dispel our misunderstanding, that they're issuing this code, which largely, they say, this is their language, largely represents a codification of principles that we long have used. So if they've long used them, what good is adding them in writing? This is ridiculous. It's nothing. It's a big nothing burger. Yeah, I thought they, um, in the language you just described, Jill, were sort of blaming the public on misperceiving yeah. them as yeah. opposed to the fact that they've done How dare you I- stupid little people misunderstand <laughs> us? I mean, it's like, really? Thank you. You've, you've cheated and now you're going to patronize me. Uh, all right. I have one good thing about the whole oh, thing. Oh, good. Which is what is the it? Fact that they, the fact that they wrote it down and that they've created an ethics code says that they at least get it, that they know that there is... A perception problem and a trust problem, but they made it unenforceable. Not- so who cares that they wrote it down? Well, we're, we're, we're baby steps. Um, <laughs> I, the question was: Is there, there the Supreme at all, Court? Is there I'm anything sorry. at all that you like about this? Okay. And the answer is: I like the fact that it's a baby step and it's a start, and they have written down rules. So um, the fact that they acknowledge that they have to abide by ethics rules. as opposed to just hiding in their ivory tower and saying none of your business, I think is a good start. All right. But do they really? No, I have to quibble about that because this bothers me and I'd love to have you make me feel better about it because I see your point, right? That doing something suggests that they're responding to some of the pressure, but there's nothing retroactive in this. Nothing says, oh, and by the way, we're going to apply this to past sins. It's like, Everything that comes before this is forgiven, and we're just going to move forward with these rules. I find that, you know, this is the court that decides issues that impact us. I mean, not too fine of a point, but this is the court that took away women's rights to make decisions about their own bodies, but they don't have to play by the rules. And, And that tells me the institution is just fundamentally broken, and they're not willing to fix themselves. Yeah. Well, I want to talk with you in a minute about what we think would be a better course to go down. But uh, I, I want to ask you also about looking at the text of these things. What loopholes do you see in here? I mean, we talked about, um, you know, sort of codifies what they've always done. Jill pointed out, you know, maybe a fix in the definition of family member. But, um, you know, they, they have all kinds of rules in here. Do you see anything that is going to continue to create or maintain problems? Yes, definitely. Um, You can start with the extrajudicial money that is allowed, and it's pretty broad. Um, They can, for example, they can't be the keynote speaker at a political event, (laughs) but they can attend it. Right. And let me just tell you that anybody who's having a political event with a Supreme Court justice there is going to say, among the attendees is, and that's going to attract people to come. So- that's sort of yeah. a big loophole. I, I agree. Say. I think that's a huge loophole. Yeah. Yeah. It also has this thing, doesn't it, where it says that family members can be whoever um, a justice considers to be, defines for themselves to be a close family member. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that include the great nephew? <laughs> so they kind of uh, give with one hand and take it back with the other. So yeah. I think this is a very self-serving document. And you know, these justices you know, they wordsmith every word of this thing. So it's all done to kind of continue to allow them to do, you know, all this outside teaching, all this outside speaking, outside writing, 
and other kinds of things. Like they got a job already, right? Do they need to do all this other outside activity? Oh, come on. We all need expensive fishing vacations, Barb. Seriously. (laughs) Here's another one, which is in terms of using court personnel, they sort of said, you know, it has to be a significant amount of time which means that court personnel can yeah. spend minimum time. Yeah. And who's going to define that minimum? Yep, loophole. I also want to go back to you know your thing saying, well, yeah, you know, at least this is a good baby step. But it also is a way to say only we can regulate ourselves. Mm-hmm. You, Congress, cannot. And um, the Congressional Service has already said that the Constitution gives Congress a role in regulating the court structure and size and procedures. So this is sort of a way to say, yeah, no, they don't. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're in this on ourselves. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of every time you see like, you know, the FBI has some snafu, they will um, say, oh, Congress, you don't need to act. We can get our own house in order and we've implemented this training right. program. So you can go away now. Uh, you know, maybe it's a fix, maybe it's not. So I do think it's an effort to appease without really solving any problems. Um, all right, Joyce, I'll let you unleash here then. Uh, what suggestions? I thought I already you- did. Well, oh, wait, yeah, but- wait, we're not done with loopholes. There's so many more. Oh, well, kidding? go ahead. Go on. Okay, so here's another one. <laughs> it creates a presumption that a justice will not recuse because there's only yes. nine of them and you can't replace them. And so it creates this very definite thing of, nah, you don't have to recuse. I think that's a really big loophole. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, they do say the Supreme Court is different because unlike other courts, there is no other court to draw from to replace somebody when there's a recusal, right? At lower courts, you can pull someone in, uh, another judge off that same bench. But at the Supreme Court, because there's only nine, we don't want to be stuck with only eight. Like, is it really the end of the world to have only eight or seven deciding a case? Well, and can't I ask this too? Doesn't that mean that these justices must hold themselves to a higher standard? They take the job voluntarily. They need to avoid these entanglements so they can stay on cases. I mean, it is not my fault that Clarence Thomas decided to let somebody, you know, pay for his, you know, adopt a kid, um, his bonus kid's uh, tuition. It's not my fault that Clarence Thomas decided he didn't want to pay to fix up mama's house on his own. He took the job of Supreme Court justice knowing that he needed to stay above the fray. He deliberately chose not to do that. It seems to me that there have to be consequences for that. And the ultimate loophole in these rules is that there are no consequences. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because okay, I wait, there's one more. I got to mention one more loophole, <laughs> just one more, and then I'll stop. Yeah, but it seems to me that it bars them if they were a government employee on a case, or a justice or a government employee, and they took a position on a case. It bars them from being on that case. It's it's one of the few places where it says you must recuse. But what about if you were in private practice and represented someone in a case? Seems to me that's a pretty big loophole because we are looking for diversity in the court and not everybody comes from government practice. So I thought that was another loophole that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, all right. So Joyce, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to fix this, what, what solutions would you propose to put teeth in it to make it stronger in a way that would still comply with constitutional separation of powers. I have some ideas, but I want to hear from each of you first. You know, I started out as thinking it was really a bad idea to let Congress get in the mix here because there are separation of powers issues. 
it's possible that there could be litigation if Congress passed a law here that would result in a lot of uncertainty. Increasingly, though, I I think that there is a way to thread that needle. We've done a lot of um, needle threading on this uh, episode of the (laughs) podcast. And it's not even knitting. You know, (laughs) here it is. Um, But Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, I think, has taken the lead in the Senate in trying to come up with some common sense proposals. Uh, You could possibly have a panel of former judges who would look at these sorts of issues. I mean, we have a lot of federal judges in this country. I get that only the nine are Supreme Court justices, but all of those other judges manage to live up to ethical standards that uphold the integrity of the courts because that's what this is about. The public is entitled to have confidence in the courts. These justices are more concerned about themselves and their trips and their ability to use, you know, their law clerks to put together PowerPoints when they talk to the Federalist Society. It's really appalling if you back up and think about what's going on. We either need better justices or we need external guarantees that they'll behave themselves or maybe we need both. So one way to get that without even raising a question of violation is for the court to hire a, an inspector general. Yeah. We've had inspector generals for at least since the Carter administration. And I think that that would be one way to solve it is they hire the person who will make these decisions and bring to the attention of the justices what can and cannot be done. And I think the gift thing is another loophole that it's not strong enough that I would add that as well. Um, I'd fix the loopholes I mentioned plus that one. Yeah, that one. And, you know, the the private hospitality stuff, you right. know, like staying at people's homes. But what about when your home is a yacht? You know, I don't have friends with <laughs> whose home is a yacht. Um, you and know, neither did Clarence Thomas before he became a Supreme Court <laughs> he's justice. A dear, but he's a dear friend, Joyce. It's a dear friend. How can you, how can you question a dear friend? Um, I saw an interesting piece by a former IRS agent who writes from time to time about, um, you know, one good fix. His suggestion was um, require justices as the president is required, so there's no separation of powers issue here, to submit tax returns to the IRS for an audit every year, just like the president does. And if the IRS finds problems with tax returns, they can refer it to the Justice Department for a criminal prosecution or to Congress for an impeachment inquiry. I think that's a good one. I like Jill's idea of an inspector general. I like the idea of having some external body of judges that'd be within the judicial branch that can look at all of this. And so I really think this idea of separation of powers is a convenient way to avoid accountability. But um, Steve Vladek has been writing a lot about this too. He has the one first substack, stack, uh, law professor at the University of Texas. Congress is involved in all kinds of things with the court. They appropriate their budget. They pay for their building. They, uh, they, they've set the number of justices at nine. The idea that Congress can't get involved is ridiculous. And Uh, I think there are a lot of ways you could put more teeth into this thing. So I think it's a good start, Joyce, but I agree with you that it doesn't go far enough. And Jill, your uh, mountain of loopholes certainly swallows up uh, the value of this code. So uh, thank you for a start, Justice Roberts, but we'd like a little more, please. So now it's time for our favorite part of the show where we get to answer your questions. You know, every week y'all send us a lot of interesting questions. We always have to um, struggle to decide which ones to answer in the show. They're that 
they're that good. But if you have a question for us, please email them to us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tag us at Sisters in Law Podcast on threads or tweet using hashtag Sisters in Law. If we don't get to your questions in the show, we try to answer them online during the week. Um, and of course, next week, we will be answering all of your questions. So send us lots of them on, on lots of different topics. We're looking forward to having fun with them. Today, we have some great questions. And the first one comes from, from Scott in Chicago, Illinois. So Jill, I'm sending this one to you. Has there ever been a case with a president as the defendant that made its way to the Supreme Court before? And did any justices recuse <laughs> themselves then? So that seems tailor-made for me, um, <laughs> although you probably meant, Scott, a criminal case. Uh, and I don't know of a criminal case, but there was U.S. v. Nixon, which was to enforce a subpoena for a group of tapes that my my office, Watergate office, had subpoenaed. And it went straight to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of our office and against President Nixon. And Justice Rehnquist did recuse himself in that case. So it was a unanimous decision by the eight justices, minus Rehnquist. Jill, are you saying that it can actually work to decide a case with eight justices because one recuses? Hey, what a good point that is. I love that. Not only that, but I want to point out how fast that was. We issued the subpoena in April and had a decision from the Supreme Court in July. Full briefing, everything happened, and of course, immediately thereafter, Nixon resigned. So it can be done fast. Well, I hope the Chief Justice is listening to our podcast this week. Um, our next question comes from at Lyrical Hiker. They ask, how about audio from the courtroom, if not video? A and I take that to be a reference to this litigation that's going on in Judge Chutkin's courtroom in the D.C. January 6th case, where some media groups have asked the judge to permit cameras in the courtroom. Of course, federal rules prohibit cameras in the courtroom. But many courts will actually make audio available, especially during COVID. It became fairly routine in some federal courts that you could call in on Zoom and listen into proceedings. I don't think that they could make Zoom work um, for uh, the Trump trial in D.C., but there's really no reason that they can't consider making audio files available. You know, I think it's unlikely, to be honest, that the, the judge will agree to have cameras in the courtroom for this trial just because of the longstanding federal rule. I think that's a shame. I'm a strong advocate for cameras in the courtroom. And one of the arguments um, Ted Brute Ted Boutros, a First Amendment expert, has made is this very narrow argument that it wouldn't really be broadcasting, which is what would violate the rule if you broadcasted from the courtroom. Ted is sort of arguing, well, if you if you you know take the court's internal feed and send it back to say a cable network and then they broadcast it, that doesn't violate the rule. So it's this very much a hair splitting argument. I think that there's a stronger case for audio. I hope that the judge will take as aggressive of measures as she feels like she can get affirmed on, on taking on appeal to give the public access to these proceedings. Barb, our last question comes from Silas. Silas says, the Q shaman is already out of jail and running for Congress. As a convicted felon, is he allowed to run for office but not vote for himself? How does that work? 
Yeah, this is such a great question. So you all remember the QAnon shaman. His real name is Jacob Chansley. He's the guy who wore that water buffalo headdress, like looks like something Fred Flintstone would wear and painted his face and had his bare chest and paraded around um, the Capitol on January 6th. Um, He was convicted. He served 41 months in prison and then he was released. And so two things going on. One, can he run for Congress despite this felony conviction? And the answer is yes. That's because the uh, the Constitution sets the qualifications for running for Congress. And it just says uh, age 25. It doesn't say anything about prior felony convictions. And so it would be unconstitutional to create new obstacles like that. It would have to be a constitutional amendment to change that. Now, your second question, though, which is, can he vote for himself? And the answer is no. That's because he lives in Arizona. That's where he's running for Congress. And under Arizona law, a person who has been convicted of a felony and while still serving a term of supervised release, as he is, he was released in March and is still on supervised release. It was just sort of a term of probation that exists in the federal system after a person is relieved to ensure that they're complying with certain conditions and are uh, transitioning back into uh, civilian life uh, appropriately. Um, He is not permitted to vote until that time comes. And so um, he has the uh, unusual situation of running for Congress, but being unable to vote for himself. Could happen to Donald Trump, who lives in Florida, where felons cannot vote until they have served their full sentence and paid back all fines. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Please support this week's sponsors HelloFresh, Blue Land, Lomi, and Thrive Cosmetics. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help make this show happen, and we love their products. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Joyce, when you just said just now, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. I sense that's like Southern for something. You were talking about <laughs> Donald Trump's uh, perhaps potential inability to vote in Florida. Can you translate? What does that mean? You know, I'm not sure it's Southern. I think it might be Jewish mama. Um, I, I don't know, <laughs> what does Jill, it mean? do you have a weigh-in on that? I mean, it's just, it's mm-hmm. sort of like the bless your heart tradition. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. think, you know, every time I, I see him doing something like that, I really do. You sort of have to shake your head and just go, mm-mm-mm. I think you got it right, Joyce. It's sort of like anything your mother would have said about from your mouth to God's ear. That's another one of those.